welcome back to Public Books 101, a podcast that turns a scholarly eye to a world worth studying. I'm your host, Nicholas Dames. I'm an English professor at Columbia University and an editor-in-chief of Public Books, which is a magazine of arts, ideas, and scholarship that's free and online. You can read the magazine at publicbooks.org. In this season of our podcast, we've been exploring the ongoing significance, or some might say the waning prominence, of the novel in the 21st century. The novel, as a medium, is at least 400 years old. And now that we have the internet and streaming entertainment to occupy our time, why do we still read, write, and love novels? Throughout this season, my guests and I have been exploring that question, and we've gotten a whole range of answers. We've discussed how novels help us navigate difficult, even dangerous ideas about issues like factory farming and about intimacy in the digital age. We've also thought about how novels help us understand the power dynamics that shape our lives. Some guests have said that novels put them to sleep, in in good ways, while others will stay up all night if the book is good enough. So if you're just tuning into this season, there's a lot to check out in our previous four episodes. If you have any thoughts about the season or about why you love novels, please tweet at us at Public Books on Twitter or using the hashtag publicbooks101. So this is our final episode. And today we're moving in a somewhat different direction. Our guests today are emergency room physicians who also have deep ties to literary fiction. How does storytelling and listening to stories affect the way doctors are able to care for patients like you and me? My guests are Dr. Jay Baruch and Dr. Rishi Goyal. To consider big ideas about medical care and medical ethics, we'll be looking at Kazuo Ishiguro's novel, Never Let Me Go, published in 2005. Now, before we get into our conversation, I want to let you know that we're going to do our absolute best to avoid spoilers when discussing this novel that is full of revelations. If you haven't read the book yet, I really think the conversation is still worth listening to. For me, talking to Jay and Rishi really enhanced the way I think about communication between doctors and patients. And after all, all of us will be patients at one time or another. So I hope the episode will give you, too, some new ways of understanding the practice of medicine. You can purchase Never Let Me Go, or any other book, through our bookselling partner for this season, Harvard Bookstore, an independent shop in Cambridge, Massachusetts. We love indie bookstores at Public Books, and hope you'll consider supporting this small and wonderful business for your book buying needs. There's a link in the show notes to their convenient online shop. All right, let's dive into the conversation. Okay, so let's begin by having you both introduce yourself. Could you please tell the listeners your name and a bit about who you are and the work that you do? And and Jay, I'll, I'll start with you. Sure. Um, my name is Jay Baruch, and I am um, a professor of emergency medicine at uh, Alpert Medical School uh, at Brown University. I direct the medical humanities and bioethics scholarly concentration. I am a, a writer and an, and an essayist. And um, a lot of my academic interest actually centers around this idea of uh, creativity as a medical instrument. Rishi, I know that um, you and I have sort of known each other for a long time. I was counting, uh, and I think it's uh, upwards of 15 years. But um, nonetheless, the, you know, you've, you've had a lot of different roles in that time. So can you uh, not only introduce yourself to the listeners, but actually to, to me as well? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's great. So it's actually, I think, been 20 years, Nick, which is... Yeah, uh, I think you're right. Uh, which that's is kind right. of incredible. So, yeah. I, you know, I, again, I'm really thrilled to be here because uh, for many reasons, but also, Nick, as you know, you were um, one of my thesis advisors during my PhD. 
PhD in English and comparative literature, and I've taken at least one of your classes, probably on the novel, <laughs> I'm guessing. So uh, I'm Rishi Goyle. I'm a professor of emergency medicine uh, and also uh, jointly appointed in the Institute for Comparative Literature and Society and the Department of Medical Humanities and Ethics at the Medical School. So in addition to teaching and working in our emergency med- uh, emergency department, I also uh, teach uh, in comparative literature, and I direct our new major in medical humanities at the undergraduate campus. You've both mentioned this term, medical humanities, that I think some of our listeners may have heard and some may not, and may need a little uh, tune-up about what that means. So, uh, Jay, you actually are director of uh, concentration whose title is medical humanities. Can you define that term for me? No. (laughs) (laughs) Um, There are a lot of people who I think have tried to put their hands around the term. And and the humanities for me has always been about sort of critical thinking and questioning norms and looking at issues from multiple perspectives and sort of justifying how you think and why you think it um, and pushing yourself into sort of uncomfortable places. Um, and again, and so it's thinking about medicine from through the culture and the, len- the lens of culture and race and equity and economics is looking at history. It's really taking a very broad view on the very things that we should be thinking <laughs> that we think about um, when we actually have our interactions with our patients and our communities and society as a whole. Rishi, do you have anything to add to that? Uh, yeah, no, I think Jay actually said a lot there. Uh, and I think I want to emphasize one thing that he says is, you know, medicine obviously, or medicine, I don't know, obviously medicine orients itself to the norm uh, and to to the normal, right? Like that that's its point of reference always. And I think the humanities at least offers a kind of stance or a habit of mind that kind of questions that notion, especially, especially kind of normative models. And that mm-hmm. we kind of try in the humanities to kind of broaden that question to be kind of anti-essentialist in our approach to biology and to knowledge, uh, and also to kind of emphasize the vulnerability of bodies, of all bodies, while focusing on a kind of critique of assumptions based on class and gender uh, while and race, while also thinking about elements that make the humanities the humanities, right? A kind of intersectionality uh, and a kind of approach that's just more inclusive. But as Jay said, I think it's, you know, it's interdisciplinary, right? What's great about the medical humanities is we can kind of borrow heterogeneous methods from across humanities and social sciences disciplines from history to literature to anthropology uh, and putting it in a conversation with medical knowledge and treat medicine as a cultural product. You know, um, I'll just add, I'll add on to what Rishi said, which I I think was, it's really, really important is that, you know, in medicine, you know, we're, we deal, like we're supposed to be quote unquote evidence-based, you know, and um, so if someone comes in, if, I, if I'm taking care of a thousand patients or 10,000 patients, I can use evidence that's sort of, that's used statistical methods to sort of have an idea about what to do. So it's telling me what to do with 10,000 patients, doesn't tell me what to do with that one patient, right? We're so often, we oftentimes don't, we train people to how to deal with populations and how to use all this information, but we don't necessarily always have a grounding on how do we deal with that single patient, that single story in front of us. And I think the humanities gives us 
a set of tools to understand in a particular experience with this particular person at this particular time and for working with uncertainty and ambiguity and for welcoming uncertainty and ambiguity. Yeah. Great. Thank you. Thank you both. So this is obviously a somewhat unusual episode for us. So far, we've been talking, you know, people who to people who are essentially just uh, scholars or just writers or some combination of the two. Obviously, the two of you have very different uh, profiles from that. And so before we get to talking about fiction, about the novel, I'd love to hear more about the work that you do as physicians, like what a typical day of practicing medicine looks like for you. Rishi, I'll, I'll start with you. Could you give our listeners a sense of what you do in a given day as a physician, what kinds of patients you tend to see and what type of setting you work in? Yeah, no, I think that's great. And I think there, you know, there is a atypicality to our day that's also typical, right? That there's a way in which it is the same and it is different every single day. Uh, both Jay and I actually work in emergency departments. So, and in kind of urban, busy emergency departments that take care of a wide range of patients from babies all the way to, you know, um, centenarians to, um, and the things that we take care of probably are ranging from simple kind of basic medical needs, uh, medication refills, all the ways to trauma, gunshots, strokes, heart attacks. Uh, typical day starts uh, with, I, you know, I work with residents, I work with PAs, physician assistants, um, and most of my patients are initially seen by uh, kind of one of those, a, a resident in training or a physician assistant who goes and kind of collects a story, does a physical, does a history and exam, and then comes back and kind of relates that story to me. And then I go back and kind of reaffirm or get a new history and a new story. And we go through this process of teaching and taking care of patients at the same time. So because we're both at training centers, we are doing direct patient care, but we're also kind of constantly sort of training up the next group and next generation of young doctors. Jay, how about you? What is What does a day look like for you? I think Rishi summed it up, you know, quite beautifully. Uh, I'll just add that, you know, we're, you know, we're both in sort of very busy centers that, uh, that serve a, you know, range of needs, but also a very varied population. And in addition to sort of different levels of medical needs, uh, we, we both face, you know, populations that are, that also face a tremendous amount of social needs as well, um, which also adds another layer of complexity and uh, to our, to our practice. And also, I believe also requires uh, oftentimes a different set of skill set because people rarely come in with just one thing. Um, and uh, I see our work generally as fulfilling, I think, the mission of what emergency medicine, you know, should be, which is, you know, providing access to, uh, of care to, to everyone. So, I mean, I feel like we've, we've maybe even started with a kind of novelistic frame. You've introduced yourself as characters. You've, you've talked a little bit about your work life and it. Then it turns out in the answers you both gave that there's a interesting kind of generic aspect to this because, Jay, the way you were speaking, it almost seemed like there's an element of translation that needs to go into the work you do, translating between the patients and the, the way they articulate their needs and uh, and others. And, and Rishi, you kept talking about um, narrative, right? Like you, you were hearing you're hearing accounts from various people and then reconfirming those accounts and passing those accounts along. So there's a 
there's a, I mean, I don't know if this seems right to you, but there's like a storytelling aspect, it seems like to me, to your work. I'm now curious to hear about your relationship to to fiction. So, uh, Risha, you, you hold a kind of unique posting at Columbia. You teach both in the medical school and in the Department of Comparative Literature. There probably aren't too many people who hold those kinds of two appointments at once. So what's the focus of the teaching you do around literature? I think that, that's a good question. I'm going to actually take it back to the emergency room for one more second, because I think, Nick, you're absolutely right in thinking about how I approach my profession as one that's narratively based, that's storytelling based. I mean, the the you know, I'm hearing stories, not directly always from the patients, but I am from them as well, but I'm hearing stories from residents, from medical students, from PAs. They are they think in some ways that they are telling me a kind of factual account, that they're they're providing data to me. But for me to be able to act on behalf of the patients they're telling me about, for me to understand kind of what brought a patient into the emergency room on this one given day, they need to bring in all the elements of a kind of good story. They need to tell me about a character. They need to tell me about kind of what happened that day, why it happened in that order, kind of the context, um, the mood, the experience of this person. And I need to be able to fully kind of grasp that from them. So the, the way that they're going to most effectively um, function on behalf of the patients is by kind of relating to me a very uh, engaging, interesting, believable, trustworthy story. When I'm teaching my residents, the medical content is there, right? The, like, you know, how do you actually treat heart failure? Or what are the medications that you give for a stroke? But more importantly, for them to be able to kind of explain to me that that's what's going on, they need to understand how kind of people embody uh, their stories. And so that's a big part of what happens in the emergency room during my actual teaching. And the classroom is a kind of different space, right? So the undergraduate classroom is, you know, I, I come from a school too that likes to imagine that literature is totally disinterested, right? Literature, what is it, saves no souls. But at the same time, I, I think many of our students uh, really want to think what they're doing matters and that, that there is some direct engagement, that reading well has something to do with being a good citizen or a good actor in the world. And I try to kind of both, you know, play with that, to disrupt that, to give them ways to think about that. Jay, do you, does anything about what Rishi said about uh, the work, uh, this the story of storytelling work in the ER, does that resonate with you? Do you have anything you'd want to add to that? Yeah, um, I actually just finished a book on that. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I mean, that was, yeah, I agree 100% with what Rishi just said. I'll just add a, a few things. He, I like following him because he makes my job much, much easier. Um, one is the fact that I found when I finished my residency, you know, I was well-trained in the things I thought were going to scare me. Like I knew if someone came in, you know, and with their heart stopped, I knew what to do. Someone came in with a gunshot wound, I knew what to do. Someone came in with a heart attack, I knew what to do. But the things that really troubled me, um, that really sort of made me stay up at night was often the things that seemed less obvious. You know, um, the the uncertainty, the ambiguity that is a regular part of clinical practice. And I actually found that 
I found I had great attraction in these moments when I started thinking like a creative writer and using my creative writing skills. And, you know, we have to think about the fact that we talk about stories if it's like this well-constructed thing that patients just give us, right? We say, and I say it all the time. I go, you know, go get the patient's story or I, or I tell a patient, I tell a story. But it's always evolving. I mean, like I... You know, as a writer, you know, there's nothing that I've written that probably hasn't been rewritten 10 or 15 times. And I'm not a patient, you know, with fears and worries and concerns. And all the time what I'm hearing and what we're hearing are like first drafts. You know, so the stories themselves are in evolution. And because they're first drafts, you have to just you have to like think with multiple ears. You're not just thinking to what the patient is saying, but you're also thinking to what the patient's not saying and you should be paying attention to. Because an ER visit is really just one slice in time. Right? They're gonna have a past and they're gonna have a future. And so you gotta think about this moment as a narrative event. Like their visit to the emergency department, most people don't want to come to the ER, right? But they do. So it's a major significant narrative event in their lives, even though for us, oftentimes, it's just another case, another patient that we're seeing. And if you think about it, narrative is so essential to what we're doing. And yet the ER probably is a narrative disaster zone. You know, it is like, can you, can you make up, like Vonnegut probably couldn't make up a worse environment, <laughs> a more satirical environment to hear really important stories, right? And the truth is, is that you know, most of my medical, my, well, most of my patients haven't been to medical school, right? So they don't know what's important versus unimportant information. So they tell you everything. Or they're scared or they're frightened or they're in denial and they tell you nothing or they tell you very little. So getting back to what Rishi's saying, this is where all those narrative skills come to bear. We have to be expert story listeners in our work. Yeah. There were so many metaphors that came to mind, Jay, when you were just speaking about what what your role is in ER in relation to storytelling. I mean, I, 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 you're... It sounded like there's an element of editing there. You're an editor. You're attempting to get from that first draft into something that is more coherent or more useful to you. You're, but also there's some. You're a, also feels like you're a collaborator in the producer of that narrative. I, I don't know what the right metaphor would be there. A midwife or some, you know, helping that person bring out the story in a way that might be difficult for them or blocked. Um, you're also a, it sounds like a therapist of a kind. I mean, listening for what's not being said. Do you think in terms of these metaphors sometimes, like I'm, you know, when I'm listening to these stories, I am, I am their editor or I'm their collaborator or something like that? Yeah, I mean, I think all of that. But I think I always think about this as, uh, you know, we are in this process of telling co-storytelling uh, without a doubt. Uh, I, I think of kind of the, the discipline, a lot of oral history. You know, we, we are trying to create kind of an anti-hierarchical space, right? Here, we are the quote-unquote knowledge experts, but without a doubt, the person that we're talking to knows their body better than I do. And like Jay said, we we come in for a snapshot, right? Sometimes minutes, sometimes seconds, maybe a little bit longer, but it's a very tiny slice of that person's life. I like the idea of an editor a lot because you know, we're, we're also putting things in order again. There's a kind of medical story. We need a certain kind of story, right? There, there's a story that the patient's willing to tell or wants to tell that's very contingent, that's very contextual, that really matters to them, and that matters. But I need the story to 
be a certain way if I'm going to be able to act on it. I need things to follow. I need some causal arrangements. I need to think about what I can do next. So I've always thought about it as a kind of a co-storytelling exercise in which we're kind of creating this medical story together. So so let me ask you both now, let me, let me pivot a bit. We've, we've been speaking about something very, a very active relationship to, to narrative that you both have in your work in the ER. But let me ask you now about your, your life as a reader. How does your reading life, and, and particularly your, your life as a novel reader, interact with your practice as a doctor? Through the years, I have, uh, for expediency, I have actually listened to a lot of books. It's strange, it's during the pandemic, I've, I've returned to fiction a lot. And it's a, it's a heartening place to be. And there are a few experiences that we have, um, that I have, that I emerge from feeling as if I've experienced something significant. And that, and I, and I only, I, and I usually only get that with novels. Rishi, do, does that uh, resonate with you? Or do you have other thoughts about it? I mean, your life as a, as a reader and its connection to your work? Yeah, I mean, I love Jay. I love that idea of this. Sort of something, something happened. Something significant happened. The kind of monumental feeling of a of a novel. I, I get that, right? Like, you know, the white spray from you know on the boat reading Moby Dick, right? Like, there's something you have to have had a big experience. Uh, you know, I I'm I'm a I'm a big novel reader. I mean, I think that's you know the sort of big baggy monster is kind of what I want. I want something that's that's messy and, and long and exhausting and durational. Like I, that, that to me is part of it. It's that kind of long durational experience. It's something that I can sit with for quite a bit of time that um, tracks for a while. I, you know, I've had periods over the last 25 years where I wasn't reading a novel and I didn't realize that I wasn't reading a novel, but I realized I wasn't feeling good. It, it was kind of, it's kind of, there's an odd thing that I have that when I don't have something, and I don't know what that experience is or why that is, but I kind of always need to be immersed in something like that. Um, and sometimes it's purely, I don't know, purely, but sometimes it's entertainment, sometimes it's reading for the plot. Um, often it's the sound of words, uh, sometimes some words next to each other, uh, a feeling, a kind of, you know, the way somebody describes how you feel when you see something. I think the way novels kind of position us in relationship to perspective, point of view. Can you, I'm just, I'm just really curious. Can you, what is the relationship of the novel to what we do? Because I've been thinking about that. And I would, yeah. Because, you know, we see short slices of people's lives, right? And... You know, does the novel provide something greater? Like, what is your connection with something that's big and baggy that you can inhabit over time versus, you know, a short immersive experience that might not allow them for the meta commentary, that might not allow you to truly fully understand, that might necessarily have all those those little things that you find comfort in a novel. Can you talk about like how those, is there a connection between the two or not? Yeah, I'm I, just well, curious. I think, I think you even said it actually earlier, which is that 
too often, uh, what I like to think about when I'm both teaching and working is that we we quickly get into a set of assumptions. And the, reading that long novel just always reminds me of how we don't have access to the interiority of our patients, how they don't have access to the interiority of the patients, right? Nick brought up the idea of being a therapist. I mean, there's so much of the unconscious that's sort of bubbling around both our patients and ourselves. There's so much more than just what I've got here. I'm a bit player in this. I'm not the star, right? And that other person over there is. Uh, and in a certain way, that the kind of novel does that for me. So on this question of what um, what stories we expect and what stories we might, in fact, be getting, might now be a good time to turn to the specific novel that uh, is the other topic today. And this is uh, this was your suggestion, Rishi. It's the book that you chose for us to discuss today. It's kind of the our our instance of 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 some of the things we've already been discussing, and that's and that's Kazuo Ishiguro's Never Let Me Go. Hello, listeners. This is Nick, your host. We're about to get into our discussion of Never Let Me Go, and at this point, I want to give just a little bit of detail about the book's three main characters who will come up in the next part of our conversation. So these three main characters are Kathy H., Tommy, and Ruth. Now, Kathy, our narrator, is an even-tempered young woman. Ruth, her close friend, is perhaps more acerbic, or at least opinionated, and, and seemingly more socially adept. Tommy, the third is a temperamental young man given to fits of violent anger that Kathy attempts to soothe out of fondness and a slowly dawning attraction. Now, all three are parentless for reasons that'll become obvious in our discussion, and they meet at a boarding school in the English countryside called Hailsham, where the teachers and staff have the odd name Guardians. But I want to start with a a particular exercise for both of you. And that is, if you could say what Never Let Me Go is about in a few sentences, what would you say, Rishi? Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you to take the first crack at that. Sure. <laughs> okay, so Never Let Me Go is a modern English s- school story told in the first person that seemingly kind of relates the banal exploits and sentiments of some young children, but in fact kind of hides a more sinister, dystopic vision of a near-past England in which human clones are raised for the express purpose of organ harvesting. That's uh, very well done. Jay, do you have a a version of that that you'd want to offer? Would you place the emphasis elsewhere? I would say Never Let Me Go is about the necessity to have stories in our lives. Hmm. Hmm. That's, and, and there, because there are so many stories operating here, right? And I mean, so many stories within the novel where these characters are trying to figure out which ones fit best, um, what these stories might mean. Both of you were gesturing to this in different ways, and I also sensed a little hesitation about it too, which is inevitable when talking about this novel. It's a novel with a premise that's not initially obvious. That is, um, if you know, unless you were really steeped in the discourse around this novel, if you pick it up, initially you're not exactly going to be sure um, what it is that's under discussion. So it's a, a little bit of a twist or a surprise that's lurking within the novel. So I actually want to ask you, 
Jay, do you remember your first experience with Never Let Me Go and what you thought you might be getting into when you picked it up? Yeah, I I did. I mean, I had read Remains of the Day and uh, Artists of the Floating World. And so I was a little bit prepared for like the types of books Shigeru writes. Yeah, exactly, exactly. The first time I read it, I was unsettled by the the detached voice. I mean, Mm -hmm. for me, the whole the the novel, despite all the attention that was played, that was paid to the science um, and some of the big moral questions, I was also kept. Captivated me initially in that first reading was the was the voice. Yeah, yeah. Rishi, did you? Um, can I ask you if your experience was similar in terms of the difference between a first and and later readings of this novel? You know, I also uh, came at this having read a few other Ishigurus, including Remains of the Day. I don't think I I knew exactly the sort of science plot to this, uh, but I did know that you know here we're going to get kind of some reticence, right? We're going to get some tact. <laughs> we're going to get. Mm. some tacit knowledge. Um, we're going to know some things that we don't know and not know some things that we do know, which I think is kind of brilliantly played out in the characters in the novel. Um, you know, kind of what do they know? When do they know it? What do they know before they know it? But I, what I remember very distinctly when I first reading it is being struck by the word carer. And I'm still mm-hmm. struck by that word mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. I think it occurs, I don't know, more than half a dozen times in the first couple of pages. And to my ears, it's a very awkward sounding word. And yet it's a word that kind of can be laden with all kinds of meanings, affective and professional and awkward. And, you know, I remember when I first came across, I thought, oh, is that is that just sort of an Englishism, you know, or is that a neologism? Is that a word? Should I know that word? Uh, you know, mm-hmm, and... Mm-hmm. And and then you get some other words that you do know, yep. but you don't know that you know, right? Like completion or donation. Those start occurring in the first few pages. So that's so I think Jay, like you, tone. But I was struck by tone specifically through the kind of usage of seemingly again banal and words, but but not quite. And that I mean, you're so there is this this language you have to learn in this novel, this this particular lexicon, right? So carers is one of the what it means to be completed, what it means to want a deferral. What I am curious about asking you about both now, though, is the fact that while the premise of the novel centers on medical science, medical science is really, really inexplicit throughout much of the novel. In fact, the first time the words medical science are used is late in the novel and not by one of the central characters, but by one of the so-called guardians of the institution they uh, were raised in called Hailsham. And, and, and of course, guardian is another one of these tricky words, um, but very, very late. And it's, I, I would say there's something really inexplicit about all of the medicine that's, that's forming the premise of the story. Um, so, Rishi, could you say a bit about how medicine is or isn't present here? I mean, I, I don't know if you, you, I feel like you'd be more attuned to its its visibility and invisibility than I would. Yeah, I mean, I think, so there's medicine and then there's probably biomedical science, which may be a little different in this category, I think. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, a lot of, and I read a lot of science fiction too, and I think a lot of science fiction uh has to do with kind of world building. And there's a certain kind of strain of science fiction that maybe is 
near fiction or near science that tries to explore or explain possibilities. And it gives you a lot of world building, right? Like, okay, so how would this actually work? Um, yeah. Whereas with this book, you don't get that at all. There's a matrix of a lot of different uh, aspects of biomedical engineering, like designer babies, um, uh, organ trades, um, uh, cloning, right? Like the Dolly the clone. But but none of this was actually exactly possible or used. It, it's interesting. So the, the medical possibilities inherent in this novel are perhaps there, but the bigger issue I think for issue guru is the kind of socio-political questions around the deployment of these medical technologies. And, mm -hmm. and, and I think to me that he sort of sidesteps the question of the kind of institution of biomedical engineering and says, sure, maybe this is all possible. Maybe this is the future, but really this kind of stuff is happening now. And biomedicine is here, here is potentially more of a metaphor than it is any kind of real question of, of this, right? Sort of yeah. exploitation is happening. To me, the pieces that feel like medicine are the donation centers and something about Kathy's role in as a carer. Th those are the yeah. kind of places that it comes closer to me. Yeah, yeah, which means that these students who exist in an institution at the start, which can feel like just a school, are already on a trajectory where their future labor, in one form or another, is going to be within medicalized settings. Jay, what's what's your impression of how medicine is portrayed or not portrayed in the novel? First off, I mean he he really makes you work as a reader. The little details he he attends to um, that destabilize you enough just enough you know and i had i haven't thought about that when rishi talked about the, the even the word carer uh, because he didn't you could easily say caregiver yeah. you know, and that i think is yeah. the, the word that would immediately come to mind but carer is is a word but it's not a word we commonly use and we have to work and how we work is you know, we bring our own experiences into this book. And so for me, I mean, even ideas, uh, like in the beginning in, at Helsham, when they when they have like their physical exams and they get checked out, I mean, they're getting checked out for different reasons, right? Yep. <laughs> you know, it's yep. not, it's yep. like they have to stay, you know, quote unquote, healthy for a particular purpose. Yep. Uh, they shouldn't smoke for a particular reason um, for their, for their instrumental, in their instrumental value. But also, it's also how, how I'm just sort of stunned by what they do and like what all of us would do if we knew our future was limited. You know, not just, you know, just the horror of sort of being used for the means of others. But what do we do if we have these imposed limitations on the, our future of what we actually can do or can be? Like, how would we respond to that? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I will say at this point in our conversation that we might actually need to go into, I don't know if, if this 
if this is the right kind of language to use for an awful like Never Let Me Go, but something like spoilers. Yeah, no, I think that sounds right. So, uh, the, you know, the story is set in Halsham, as Jay mentioned, which is a, a school, a kind of bucolic school in the English countryside set up a, around the kind of public school kind of system of, um, of England at the time. There are these children that don't have parents that we find out later are in fact human clones. Uh, we don't know who they're cloned from, but they are raised in a particular way so that at some point later in their life, they will be able to donate their organs to others that are sick, that might have cancer, that are dying. So their entire purpose uh, in being raised was uh, as kind of uh, farms for organs. But the, the, in the premise of the novel is that that you might be able to raise these children in such a way that um, either they might be given a, a kind of a good life or that you might be able to prove something about them. Um, and I think this goes back to, you know, if I was going to re-say kind of what I thought Never Let Me Go was about, I might do it again, you know, because Jay's was more um, kind of thoughtful or poetic than my simple plot summary. It's about kind of what counts as human and what doesn't count. As human. And I might, if I can add something, I think it might also be about, and I think you were already gesturing to this, Rishi, about the ways in which those exclusions get legitimated. There are mm -hmm. ways in which we can learn to be okay with them. Even the people who are being excluded can maybe learn to be okay with them. This podcast is a production of Public Books, a free online magazine where scholars, critics, activists, and other experts share their deep learning with the public. I'm Kelly Dean McKinney, the publisher of Public Books, and I'm here to invite you to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. We'll email once each week with the latest from the magazine, essays and interviews that answer questions like, what can big data teach us about eviction laws? How can we design artificial intelligence that does not reinforce racial and gender bias? And why is it that queer female fans have so much love for TV shows that feature straight men hugging each other a lot? For these answers and more, subscribe to the newsletter at publicbooks.org. Thanks, and back to the show. I'm always struck, and I actually would love to get your take on this, Nick, too, because you know the 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 what they're reading often at Halsham is um, Victorian novels, right? Yeah. And I and I and I know you have a you know fondness for the Victorian novel, <laughs> and so you yep. know kind of yep. like, do you think that that's just a, a random piece of this text, or is there something specific that? Um, Ishiguro is trying to say about the power of the Victorian novel. You know, so like the, obviously the George Eliot line comes to mind. What is it like the, 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 the you know, the, so the, what we owe to the artist is the extension of our sympathies, right? And, um, mm. and it's one mm. that I kind of quote a lot, uh, it, that the, the, the great art can somehow do that kind of work. But I don't know. I mean, in in the context of this novel, it seems a little um, duplicitous, right? That you know, yeah. here it's this is the trough. We're, we're leading the you know the the pigs or the cows to slaughter here, and on the way we're going to pave that slaughter with the Victorian novel. Yeah, I, I have. I mean, I, as you might expect, I have a lot of thoughts about that, right? <laughs> and 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 but they they are they're all over the map. And and at times, I think that these students are fond of and are allowed to have Victorian novels, partly because these novels 
are set at a safe distance in time. It's a hearkening back to a moment where reading, and particularly reading novels like that, is thought of as one of those tasks or experiences that helps give you a sense of self. And there's a, you know, almost like a kind of soul-making mm-hmm. process. And so one of the ways art is being positioned in the novel is as a kind of experiment to see whether these students possess something like a soul, right? We, we eventually learn that's one of the kind of experimental purposes behind this, this emphasis on their art. Now, there's a really interesting and troubling moment, though, where Kathy says, uh, the narrator talking about the art that they're asked to produce, says, well, of course, you know, they, they trade their art, by the way, at fairs, right, for trinkets that become really, really important to them. And she says, well, of course, I understand why people would want drawings, um, which, you know, they tend to produce. I, I get that, and I get why drawings have value, but she says, well, but poetry, she, she's refers, she says poetry, I don't understand why anybody would want that. Um, she says, you could just copy that. Why That, that really should have no value. And I, I'm, I guess it's a way of saying that the novel is, doesn't, I don't think, have a really reassuring message about what the function of something like a novel might be. That it, it, it doesn't let us rest easy with the idea that narrative gives us a sense of self or even something like a soul. It might even be something like a kind of placebo, right? It might just be something that kind of pacifies us, that occupies us um, or distracts us in some way. I, I don't know, but I, I, I feel like I'm constantly toggling between those two possibilities, that fiction is the thing that kind of numbs us or it's the thing that might actually provide us with a kind of interiority. That is not clear to me. Um, yeah. In rereading it this time, I, and, and I think this is true every time I read the novel, I, I'm struck by how incredibly disembodied the novel can be, even though it's a novel about bodies, about about what medicine chooses to do to bodies. There's very little attention to the bodies of the characters. I mean, you know, the, the narrator, um, Kathy, rarely, if ever, refers to her own body, I think, or even the bodies of others. What she does lavish description upon are inanimate things, like the landscapes, the weather. Did this did this strike you too, Jay? I mean, and and if so, like what what, what is the effect of this for you as a reader, particularly a reader who's also a doctor and, and inevitably interacts with bodies frequently in your work? We examine the body, we palpate the body, we meditate on the body, um, we give names to the body, but. Um, but we don't always engage with the body um, as a body. You know, it's as knowledge, it's as information. And I, I thought your question, Nick, was just so astute and provocative because it's true. I mean, the, when bodies are engaged, they're either in sort of physical activity, um, playing, you know, playing soccer in the beginning, um, and there's a lot of, you know, and there's sexual activity. You know, there's, yeah. there's pleasurable. Yeah. Yep. And uses of the body. And so the it's everything around what other than what ultimately their bodies are going to be used for. Yeah. And and I feel this disembodiment also somehow creates that that tension and forces us to enter into it and go, wait a minute. I think that absence, that question is I I feel is probably somewhat purposeful and designed that way. Yeah. 
You're you're right. I mean, so play is maybe one of the one of the ways that the body appears in the novel. And the other is is sex. And there is this interesting question in the novel about uh, which seems to be we we eventually learn is really a kind of question for the guardians too about what do we do about these students and their sex lives. Um, should they have sex lives? It, you know, early on, one of the things we learn is that it turns out smoking is much, much more of a taboo than sex. Jay's brought up pleasure. There, you know, they didn't feel all that pleasurable, the sex in the book, right? I mean, it was mediated through pornography. Henry, can I ask you a question? Yeah. I think you're right. I think ple- pleasure might not pleasure might not be the right word. Would desire... Mm be a better word? I don't know. I'm just throwing that out there. Yeah. I, you know, again, for me, the, the sort of sex thing almost felt like this is a way to um, mitigate agitation, right? You know, I mean, part of Kathy's role in this whole book is to make sure that that excess emotion is managed, right? That the that Tommy's agitation or the donor's agitation is dissipated. Because if you didn't dissipate it, then the whole system might kind of fall apart. So Kathy's yeah. got this kind of complicit... Yeah space there. And in that same way, sex feels like, okay, it's a quote-unquote natural bodily function. We have to give it space. Um, and if we give it some space, then maybe the students will be more manageable. Like, what do you what do you make of those urges? Like, is that holding back what she, like she, this something that's sort of just so human, that's sort of managing to come through despite all her efforts to manage? Uh, I think that's what you're saying is really fantastic. Yeah, no, it reminds me of what happens to Tommy, right? Like, so Tommy's figure to me in the beginning and at the end, and Kathy brings this up, that, you know, you know, because Tommy is one of the three main characters, I would say. It's Ruth and Kathy and Tommy, and there's a kind of uh, sort of triangular relationship between the three of them. But in the beginning, we see Tommy, who is is known for having outbursts, right? For having these, um, he's known for two things, really. One is for having outbursts, uh, and the other is for not being really good at art, right? And these two yeah. are seminal yeah. to the kind of plot of the book. But the outbursts are either a scene of immaturity or, as Kathy interprets later, the outburst is Tommy's anger at the situation that he's in that he isn't recognized as a full human being and he doesn't have the rights and, you know, life of a human. But Kathy says, you probably had these outbursts because you knew something that you didn't even know, right? It's your body, it's your body letting go of this knowledge. And in the same way, that kind of sex piece seems like it's a body that's being, you know, that knows more than the mind knows, perhaps. Yeah. That, Jay, I thought your distinction between pleasure and desire was really helpful here in, in unpacking some of what's so tricky about the way the novel describes sex. You know, initially when we learn about the kind of guardian's attitude towards sex, it's interesting because it might strike a reader as progressive, right? You know, the, the sex for teenagers, good, clean, fun if you do it with somebody <laughs> you feel safe with. And, um, and then you learn, well, that's because there's an attempt to sort of separate pleasure and desire that's going on. Pleasure is okay. It's an outlet. It's, it's understood as something that's sort of biologically inevitable, but desire is a real problem. And it would lead to other forms of disruptive desires, which um, that almost has to be mitigated against. And that's the, almost the, the kind of emergency here. So this takes me to 
one thing I want to ask you both again from your position as as doctors, like a lot of Ishiguro novels, so much of what this novel is about is about not wanting to know something. In this case, not wanting to know the truth about major phenomena in the lives of these in the lives of these people, organ harvesting, illness, what aging or death will look like in in their cases. So there's a there's a almost foundational not wanting to know these difficult truths or wanting to know to a point, but a, a complicated relation between knowing and not wanting to know. And that introduces this big question about the ethics of informing someone of what they don't know and when to do it and how to do it and how that is to be timed. And I'm wondering, um, Jay, maybe I'll, I'll start with you, what you make of the way this novel treats what I'm going to call something like the ethics of disclosure when you are willing to give somebody information that they don't possess or only possess in some really, really implicit form. People want to know generally. I mean, there are, there are circumstances when sometimes you with, you withhold or you, you sort of, you get ready for the person to sort of get ready for the information so they're better prepared. But, but I think that oftentimes when, when we withhold information, uh, we might think it's because patient or the family or someone is not ready for it or can't handle it. Uh, but my suspicion is uh, I feel that oftentimes the problem is in us and our comfort and our ability um, and our skill to actually have those conversations, which are oftentimes very difficult and very uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. So, you know, which brings me to, you know, my, you know, the story, you know, the, this novel, uh, and uh, and the sort of motivation behind even creating Halsham in the first place, you know, was it was it really about uh, giving these clones a a hint of of a good life, or was it a construction sort of built by people in power to make themselves feel better uh, about the the proceedings that they were complicit in, uh, they were part of. There are things, there's one thing I say in medicine to a lot of patients, like, oh, there's two things I never say. I never say always, I never say never. Um, because, you know, we're always proven wrong um, and we're always humbled again and again. But recognizing the tension between what we think patients are comfortable with and what they know and our discomfort and revealing that is, I feel, a very tender and a very important uh, area that requires, I think, great skill and exploration. Rishi, did this novel make you think or act any differently as far as how you interact with patients, particularly around issues of information or disclosure? Hmm, That's a good question. And I don't think so. I think I sort of agree with Jay. And my sense of it, again, going back to this book, is that I think people know already, right? Like that's always the case. You know, the, the pe- person that doesn't want to know or that you're trying to withhold information from, the body already knows, right? And it's usually around these kinds of diagnoses. Most people that that you're sort of hiding things from, uh, if you were going to, I think already had a sense of something going on. So that that's probably where it dovetails with this mm. book. And, and when I think about the book, I think a little less about my own practice than I do about kind of teaching, right? So what you asked earlier about how you would teach a book like this to literature students or any book, 
versus to teach residents. And I think it's the kind of book why I was sort of thinking about this book for our discussion is it's one that kind of can play in both realms pretty interestingly and pretty differently. But in both realms, you you can suggest to students, other readers, physicians, PAs, literature students, that, that, that the novel allows you to kind of critique the world you're living in without doing it directly. You know, that, 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 that it's, it's very hard, I think. I think it's more effective, or one of the things that makes novels effective as critical tools or kind of thinking tools is that you can offer kind of analysis of your current moment without doing it directly. And, and, and I think that's what Never Let Me Go allows me to bring up in both of those two different settings. Yeah, that's that's so awesome, Rishi. I mean, I heard someone once talk about sort of the role of, I don't know if it was specifically the novel or stories and fiction in general about sort of like simulations for life. Yeah, yeah, that's great. What I'm finding fascinating about kind of reading right now is the extent to which uh, these sort of questions of science are kind of foregrounded on so many of the the works that I'm looking at that are kind of showing up that, uh, you know, our, our science literacy as a society is sort of increasing, or at least we're having to contend with it much more regularly. Uh, you know, kind of what is the place and purpose of sort of science in 21st century life? Yeah. Can I ask you both one other question, which is what, so we've talked about literature students, we've talked about classrooms of uh, future doctors, do you think this novel can teach patients anything? I mean, and I, I guess it's a pretty capacious category because we're all eventually going to be patients, right. if we're not already. Is that something we should be thinking about as far as what this novel does? I'll take a stab at that. First of all, I, I think that uh, after 30 years of doing this um, thing called emergency medicine, uh, I sometimes wonder, like, who has, you know, taught more, like have, I think my patients have taught me more than I have taught them uh, over 30 years, uh, taught me more about myself. I feel like the novel, if you're going to sort of use the novel as sort of a focus for teaching and discussions, I, I feel like what literature and arts bring to sort of medical education, and, and I'd love to hear what Rishi has to say about this, is... It really provides, like as he said, like this non-hierarchical platform for discussions that we might not be able to have otherwise. Like, and I think our ability to create these other third spaces, and I feel like we're so focused on, I feel like in medical education that we're oftentimes so focused on having answers um, when really what we're What's so important um, is the skill and the sensitivity and the and the curiosity to learn how to ask the right questions, you know. And we just don't honor that as much in medical education. I often find my undergraduate students are much better at that than the medical students who are sort of taught differently. Their goals or outcomes are different. Like we re we re we reward certainty in medicine um, and less so the these stories that don't fit into a convenient narrative. Mm -hmm. So if we're gonna use this, a book like this, which I think would be a beautiful book to use because it unfolds and it grows with you. You know, it's the sign of a great book, right? It, it grows with you with rereading. And as you go older and you have experiences, you bring more to the book. Um, the book stays the same, but the book doesn't. The book grows with you. Um, is like, 
who's also in the room being taught. Like, I feel like if we're going to have a conversation, like who else is in that? Like, is it physicians and patients? Is it physicians and different staff members and caregivers and people from different perspectives who can really bring their own perspectives and insights from their own lives into the conversation? Thank you for this discussion. I feel like we could have talked for another couple hours easily about Ishiguro. Um, and maybe maybe we'll get to it at some point. But in any case, thank you both very much for this. I appreciate it. And I, I really appreciate your perspectives. Thank you, Nick. And thank you, Rishi. It's awesome to have a conversation with you, buddy. And that's our season. A huge thank you to Dr. Jay Baruch and Dr. Rishi Goyal for sharing their thoughts about novels and medicine. You can find links to their work at publicbooks.org slash podcast. Next week, we're publishing a big list of readings related to our season's topic, the novel. So if you teach courses on fiction, or if you're looking for more interesting books to read, we have lots of ideas to share. So be sure to visit publicbooks.org slash podcast on or after April 12th to check out that resource. We'd be so grateful if you'd rate and review our show in Apple Podcasts and subscribe to the show there or in your favorite podcast app. You can follow Public Books on Twitter and Facebook at Public Books. Thank you so much for listening to this season, The Novel Now. We so appreciate your time and attention, and we wish you years of happy reading. This podcast is a production of Public Books in partnership with the Columbia University Library's Digital Scholarship Division. Thank you to Michelle Wilson at the library for partnering with us on this project. This episode was produced and edited by Annie Galvin, with production assistance from Kelly Dean McKinney. Our theme music was composed by Jack Hamilton. Special thanks to Audrey Stewart at Harvard Bookstore and to the editorial staff of Public Books for the support for this project. Thank you for listening, and I hope to see you next time.